You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. Now, during our Advent season, we explored the first verse of the famous Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. But there's also a verse within that hymn that is equally rich that I want to read this morning. It goes like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The presence of Jesus Christ, which he describes as the kingdom of God drawing near, means that the grace of God has come to eradicate the curse, to bring about blessing where there has been curse, to bring about life where there is death, to bring about freedom where there is slavery. Jesus has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. C.S. Lewis illustrates this in his work, The Chronicles of Narnia, and it's a story that follows a group of four siblings as they journey into this magical land named Narnia. And as they step through the wardrobe, they come to discover that this magical land is a cold, wintry place. In fact, there is a curse upon the land that makes it always winter and never Christmas, always winter and never spring because of this curse from the White Witch. And the cold snow is smothering life. And these children meet a beaver family, and Mr. Beaver begins to describe Aslan, this great lion, one who's going to come and triumph over the evil queen, one who's going to break the curse that has fallen upon Narnia. And he says, in fact, as we speak, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is moving in. And Mr. Beaver says this, wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. 
what they come to discover as they move towards this magical land and as Aslan is moving towards this magical land, that they're beginning to see the evidences of life budding up as the describer, I'm sorry, as the narrator describes every moment the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow grew smaller. As Aslan came closer, that death that sat upon the land began to be lifted and the life was beginning to pop up. As we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we can't help but see the patches of life beginning to pop up where life had otherwise been smothered by the frigid, cold, and and painful blanket of sin and brokenness. As Jesus is moving in, wrong is being made right. See, a little bit of the theological underpinnings of what we're seeing here in Mark. See, when the kingdom of God breaks into our world, it brings freedom, and it brings peace, and it brings welcome and healing and wholeness in the places where the breakdown of sin has brought bondage and strife and isolation and hurt and brokenness. The scope of God's healing grace extends to the furthest reaches of our human existence. The scope of the healing grace of God reaches beyond our wildest imagination. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And men and women are experiencing this. Mark previously tells us that on the prior night, the sick and the oppressed are coming to Jesus to find healing, coming to Jesus to find spiritual deliverance. In fact, the scene ends the night before with the entire city gathered at the door, knocking at the door to see Jesus, to experience what Jesus can give them. And that's where we pick it up this morning. That scene ends, people knocking at his door, people coming to be healed. And now, this next morning, Mark tells us that Jesus is on the move. And as Jesus is on the move, there's three movements that I want us to to notice in this passage. Three movements to note this morning. That Jesus went out, that Jesus went on, and Jesus went in. Let's look first that Jesus went out. Look with me, verses 35 through 37 once more. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon... And those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. That's interesting. At the moment, Jesus is riding a wave of success and fame. We just read that, and we've read that in the, in, the, in the passages prior to this. People are knocking on the door to see Jesus from a PR perspective. This is momentum to leverage. If Jesus is going to be starting a movement right now, this is momentum to take advantage of. Strike while the iron is hot. There is no time to waste. And yet Jesus departs to a desolate, solitary place. He moves away from the crowd to pray. Isn't that interesting? Everyone is knocking on his door, and Jesus leaves it behind. In a moment of recognition, in a moment of popularity, the kind of popularity that many of us dream of, the kind of recognition that many of us work our entire lives to achieve, he intentionally leaves. He intentionally leaves behind. He leaves the spotlight. 
And in that moment, there is something being revealed. Mark is revealing something in this mention here for us this morning. And what's being revealed is what drives Jesus' heart. What's the engine of Jesus' heart? What does drive Jesus? Well, clearly it's not crowds. Clearly it's not spectators. Clearly it's not human recognition and human approval and popularity. So what is it? What moves Jesus' heart is intimacy with God. What drives Jesus is proximity to the Father. This is the engine for Jesus' ministry. In fact, we'll see this all throughout the book of Mark. Before something significant happens, Jesus goes and gets away to be with God. And so the question that sits over this passage for us this morning, the question that we need to consider is this. What is driving you? What gets you out of bed every morning? What feeds your soul? What fills your cup? What moves you? In the me-centered culture of social media and LinkedIn and followers and trends and Yelp reviews and you name it, where our future seems to depend so much on remaining in favor with people, that our survival seems to be hinging on being a significant individual, being noticed in the crowd, where we attach our personal worth and our significance and our identity to things like followers, to things like likes, to online recognition, to recognition from people around. In that world, we would do well to learn here from the example of Jesus. What we see here is that life does not depend on public opinion. Life depends on private devotion. We think it's what they say out there. Jesus is showing us something entirely different. That this is where life is found. This is where the power comes from. This is where we are motivated and moved forward in our lives. Not the recognition of people, not popularity, but the voice of God. Being a beloved child of God, as we've already seen, means that we find our identity in the voice of God. In that great and powerful pronouncement, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Not in recognition. Not in public praise. If we tether our soul to the acclaim of others, whether it's one or two or an entire crowd, what we discover is that we will rise and we will fall with very fickle approval. In the 21st century, you could be the most popular person on earth and be forgotten tomorrow. You can be beloved today and despised tomorrow. Jesus does something entirely different. He tethers his identity to the unfading love and approval of God. And now he's reinforcing it in prayer. See, for us, so many of us are trying to become someone important. So many of us are maybe perhaps trying to prove ourselves to that parent that never seemed to be proud of you, to the naysayer that said you couldn't, to the boss that overlooked you, to the group that never accepted you trying to make ourselves something, trying to prove ourselves, yet we ignore the one voice in the entire universe that truly means something. 
We're out starving for attention, starving for approval, and yet we ignore the one voice that has the power to really, truly identify us and speak life into us and speak meaning and purpose and identity into us. We neglect the one place that we discover who we truly are. We neglect the one place where those emotional wounds that we all carry can truly be healed in private devotion. See, what the ministry of Jesus shows us is that sometimes this voice, the voice of God, is heard clearest in desolate places. In desolate places. Isn't that strange? See, a word has now reappeared in the narrative of Mark. It's the same word that was used to describe the wilderness. The same word that's used to say that the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness is now being described as Jesus intentionally went away into a desolate place. Jesus intentionally goes into the wilderness. Jesus intentionally moves towards obscurity. Why? Because he knows that in the dry and the desolate is where we can actually find the life and the refreshing of God. That's where Jesus is found. I find this interesting. It says, according to Simon at least, everyone is looking for him. An entire city is looking for Jesus, but almost no one was looking for him here. Everyone thought to look for Jesus. Almost no one thought to look for him here, in the wilderness, in the desolate place. I wonder how many of us this morning are here searching. Where are you, Jesus? Why can't I find you? Why can't I hear you right now? Why aren't you speaking to me right now? Why can't I feel your presence in my life and yet we are unwilling to find him in the desolate place? Like the people in Capernaum, we are searching for him but in all the wrong places. So what can we gather from this? Well, we will almost always look for Jesus in the phenomenal. That's common. We will almost always look for Jesus to do something phenomenal in our lives, but we will seldom be willing to search for him in the obscure. We'll search for him in the miraculous, but we will overlook him in the ordinary. We want to see him in the pizzazz, in the big, in the boom, but we overlook him in the quiet, in the solitude. And what Mark shows us is that crowds are willing to follow Jesus into the miraculous, but very few are willing to follow him into the wilderness. Yet this is often where we find the healing that we require most. Jesus went out. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus went on. Look at me in verses 38 through 39. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, there are two events in my life that are etched in my memory forever, where I clearly saw the hand of God at work in my life, both times, ironically, behind the wheel of a car. The first time I was a teenager, Fresh out of the DMV with my license, I had just scraped up enough money to buy myself a beautiful, gorgeous, dark teal 1992 Volvo 240. 
It was the kind of car that even your grandma would be embarrassed to drive, but it was mine. Sometimes you have to get out and push it. Sometimes you have to kind of rub the fuses together to get it started, but it was my escape into freedom. And so I lived up in the foothills, and I would have to commute 45 minutes each way to, to, the, to school in Sacramento. And uh, one morning, I'm, I'm driving the commute, and I've got the, the music really loud. I had the little portable CD player on the, on the seat next to me with the little cassette converter. Every time the car bumped, the CD skipped. And so I'm listening to music loudly, and just at that moment, I look up in time to see the red light on that brand new stoplight, the kind that controls the, uh, the flow of traffic coming onto the freeway. Brand new light. Because of the music, because whatever, I, I just was not paying attention, and I look up just in time to see that I'm going to run that red light. And at the same time I'm seeing that red light, I see out of my peripheral vision a car spinning out of control. Uh, off the freeway, at freeway speeds, hit the embankment, spin across the off-ramp, or I'm sorry, the on-ramp. And this is where it all goes uh, slow motion for me. But as I'm barreling through that stop sign, I'll never forget the sounds, I'll never forget the sights as I look in my rearview mirror to see that car, just that blur of a car move across uh, my rearview mirror. The next morning I show up to see the screech marks right where I should have been stopped. Now, if... If I had been stopped there and that car was moving anywhere near freeway speeds, I would have been dead. There was this moment, as like a 16 or 17-year-old, I knew that the hand of God had spared me, that he had been gracious to me. But here's the thing. Like the people that we read of throughout the Gospels, like so many people that were attracted to Jesus' miracles, I can tell you honestly, it did not result in repentance in my life. I was wowed. Uh, I, it resulted in amazement, but not saving faith. And for years, I carried on my life in rebellion towards God, knowing in some way that God had spared my life and yet totally not recognizing God's plan of salvation for me. The second event was an ordinary night. I'm driving on the freeway. This time I've got my wife in the passenger seat, our oldest son in the back, just a baby at the time. And um, this time there was no cars spinning out of control, nothing crazy going on, totally ordinary night. But my wife turns to me and says, do you understand the grace of God? And for, for whatever reason, that was the moment that it clicked. My wife had committed, recommitted to following Jesus about six months earlier, started praying for me. Again, no, no car spinning out of control. No, like, whoa, like I just was spared from the grips of death. Just a really common, ordinary conversation about the gospel of Jesus Christ. One left me amazed at the time. One was like, wow. The other changed my heart forever. And this seems to be why Jesus, in the midst of wowing crowds, is willing to move on. See, Jesus is showing them that a healing ministry can draw a crowd. 
but only a gospel ministry can change lives forever. The miracle of healing brings relief for today, but the miracle of the gospel brings everlasting freedom to all who believes. People were changed temporarily, but those who heard that message and believed that message were changed forever. Now, Jesus is clearly moved with compassion. I hope you're not hearing me wrong. Jesus is moved with compassion to heal, and he heals today. As a pastor, I'm praying for people in our church all the time, praying for men and women. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, we heard the story of a woman in this church who heard from her doctor that nothing shy of a miracle could explain the condition that she was in. We believe that God heals. We believe that God heals today. So I hope that you're not hearing me wrong on this. But here's the point. Even from the beginning of Mark's narrative, it's clear that Jesus desires to do something deeper. He desires to do something deeper for humanity. He desires to do something deeper in your life as well. See, the great physician not only mends our wounds, but he deals with the problem, the deeper problem, in order to bring about the kind of healing that we all need most. See, like a good doctor, he will not only treat the pain, the great physician will deal with its source. In Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah and what he's going to do and accomplish on behalf of humanity. This is a description of Jesus, what Jesus would ultimately accomplish hundreds of years later. And this is what we read. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. By the wounds of Jesus Christ, we are healed. You see, the Bible shows us that there's a sort of healing that requires the hands of Jesus. But then there's a kind of healing that requires nothing less than the wounds of Jesus. And this is why Jesus came. From the very beginning of Mark, Jesus is moving toward the cross. This is why Jesus says we we need to move on. I didn't come just to begin a healing ministry. He is making a beeline toward the cross in order to offer the kind of healing that all of us, all of us sin-sick people require so that you and I could be saved, so that you and I could be healed. You see, there's a miraculous work that Jesus intends to do in our lives, but it's going to be deeper than we could ever imagine. It's deeper than you could ever imagine. Because the need is going to be greater than we could ever imagine. See, we say things like, God, if you would just fix this in my life, then I would be whole. God, if you would just heal this area of my life, then I would be happy. If you just do this miraculous thing in my life, then I would truly be alive. You bring this person into my life or take this thorn out of my my side. Just whatever you do, if you just do this for me, then I would be really happy. Then I would be a real person. Then I would have real joy then I'd be really whole. We often see the need for surface healing, but we seldom see the need for transformation. But for the child of God, he's always doing a deeper work of transformation. He's always doing a deeper work in our lives than we can ever imagine. And sometimes that deep work of transformation involves healing what ails us. 
And sometimes that deep work of transformation means, like in the case of Paul and the thorn in his flesh, it means letting it remain, letting it stay, so that he can do something deeper. See, what Jesus indicates here in Mark is that this healing comes through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus went on, and this is why we must go on with him with the good news of the crucified and risen Christ who died for our sins and rose again that we may have new life and is now seated and enthroned in heaven above as Lord over all. The message of a kingdom that brings healing of mind, healing of heart, healing of soul for those who repent and believe. The kingdom that we can experience today in part. A kingdom that we will experience in full at Christ's return. Jesus without. Jesus went on, but finally, Jesus went in. Jesus went in. Tells us, Mark tells us that while Jesus was in Galilee, verse 40, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, to understand the significance of this move, we need to understand that leprosy was not just a skin disease, although it was. Leprosy brought not only physical anguish, as, our, as someone with leprosy, literally their skin would be eating away at themselves, but it also brought emotional and relational and spiritual anguish. In fact, listen to how the Old Testament describes the life of the leper. Leviticus 13, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out as a warning to the people around him, unclean, unclean, stay away, stay away. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. That is who he is. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. This was the life of the leper. This was the life of the diseased. So the idea in the Jewish religion was that if someone was unclean, if an unclean thing touched a clean thing, that clean thing would no longer be clean. In other words, the unclean had the ability to contaminate. And because of the contaminating nature of uncleanliness, those people would be rejected by their community. They would be rejected by their family. They would be rejected by the ones that they loved most. They would be doomed to live alone and ashamed forever rejected by their community, forever rejected by their, by their family, isolated outside the city gates. But it gets worse. As you remember from last week, in the Old Testament, if anything was unclean, it actually banished that thing or that person from the presence of God, which meant the unclean individual was excluded from participating in worship. They, weren't, they, were, they were not able to belong to the people of God. They were not able to belong to God. Leprosy, like our sin, had separated them and separated this individual from God and his people. And this may be why, this may actually explain why when the leper comes to Jesus, he does not say, if you will, you can heal me. He comes to Jesus and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Why does he do that? Not you can heal me, but you can make me clean. 
It's because by grace, he is beginning to see the deeper need. He's seeing the deeper need that we all have. He's not just asking for healing. He's asking to be restored to God. He's asking to be restored to God's people. This is a man starved for love, starved for fellowship, starved for attention, starved for touch, starved for God. And he's reached this point in his life where he's literally just had enough. He's just come to the end of it. He says, I can't take it anymore. And he comes to Jesus. Now, we may gloss over that, but the fact that he comes to Jesus means that he's risking his life. He's breaking all the religious, cultural taboos. This could mean death for him. And yet he is banking it all on the hope that Jesus is both merciful enough to accept him and holy enough to cleanse him. He's saying, I got nothing left to lose right now. I'm putting all my chips in on Christ. I am betting it all on the mercy and holiness of Jesus Christ because nothing else can fix me. Nothing else. So what happens, verse 41 through 42, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. When everyone else would have ran away, Jesus went in. Jesus moves in. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus didn't have to touch him. In fact, there are many times throughout the gospel where Jesus just says the word, even from a far distance, and the person is healed. Jesus could have said, whoa, 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 whoa there, son. Stay there. I got good aim. You're healed. But he doesn't. If any situation where Jesus could have... But he doesn't. He moves in. So why does he touch him? Well, Mark tells us that he's moved with pity. He's gripped with compassion. Jesus is not only compassionate enough to, to meet his spiritual needs, but now he is meeting his physical needs, his emotional needs. Jesus knows it's been a long time since someone has treated him like a human being. Jesus knows it's been a long time since someone stared in his eyes with love. Jesus knows it's been a long time since someone's touched him. Jesus knows it's been a long time since someone was willing to move in rather than run away. And so he touches him. Now, there are countless studies and findings about our need for touch. We all know that babies fail to thrive without human touch. Babies need that affection. Babies need that touch. But there are countless studies now that are showing that adults suffer as well. That there's something about touch. There's something about the embrace. There's something about someone reaching out to us in love and care that is healing to our, to our souls. That gives us life. But here's the unfortunate thing, because I know it's going through your mind, and it goes through my mind when I hear things like touch. Jesus touched them. In our world, touch has been essentially reduced to two things, romantic and abusive. Touch is either erotic or predatorial. And that's probably where our minds go, but what we see here is that Jesus does neither. It's not erotic. And it's not predatorial. It's healing. In fact, in the words of Tolkien, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. I love this. In, in, in a world broken by hurtful touch, the first century and the 21st century, in a world that has been broken by touch, 
the kingdom of God introduces a healing touch. As God reaches out and touches, as we extend welcome in the name of Jesus Christ, as we extend, as we did this morning, we extend the peace of Jesus Christ, even in a simple embrace of hands. Peace be with you and also with you. Jesus is also revealing the nature of his holiness. Remember, the unclean could contaminate the clean. The chance was that this man's, really the risk, was that this man's impurity would be transferred to Jesus. That when that man touched Jesus or touched the, that, uh, Jesus touched that man, that that man's leprosy would be transferred toward Jesus, that his uncleanness would become Jesus' uncleanness. But instead, the unimaginable happened. Jesus and his purity transfers to him. The reverse of the curse occurs. Rather than sin and curse extending holiness and blessing and purity is invading. And it's revealing to us that the cleansing power of Jesus' holiness overcomes the defiling power of sin. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. Verses 43 and 44. And as Jesus, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourselves to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Jesus or what Moses rather commanded for a proof to them. Now, in the law, a little bit of history, and then I'll close here. In the law, there was a provision in the rare, rare case that the leper was cleansed. Now, there are very, very rare cases that lepers are, are healed. We, we read about it in the Old Testament. But generally, some believe that that provision really was just for someone that was misdiagnosed. Someone that thought they had leprosy and they were going through all the, the motions of being a leper and then they find out that it was just like a rash or something like that that went away. But there was a provision in the law for the leprous person. Now, this is the easiest portion of this passage to gloss over, but I actually think it's actually the most vital for us. So please pay attention. Jesus, not coming to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, sends this man back to the priests in order for the priests to be able to officially pronounce that this man is cleansed. Something that Mark wants us to see here is this that the law provided instructions on what to do with a cleansed man, but in and of itself, it was powerless to change a person. It had the provisions and the declarations for a cleansed man, but it lacked in and of itself the power to change a person. And what we see here in this contrast between Jesus and the regulations of the law is this, that the law is able to determine what is clean or unclean, but only Jesus can heal. That bears repeating. The law has the ability to determine what is clean and unclean, but only Jesus has the ability to heal. Religion provides rules concerning right and wrong, but the work of Jesus Christ provides the power to change. The law condemns. The Spirit gives life. One route comes to God Trusting in our own ability to change ourselves. And the truth is, we do this in the 21st century. We use God's word, we use God's law as a way to determine what is right and wrong 
to determine what we need to do in order to fix ourselves and cleanse ourselves and present ourselves to God. And the other route comes to God, trusting in Jesus' ability to change us. But one leaves us stained. One leaves us frustrated. One leaves us isolated. And the other restores us to life in Jesus Christ. But the law declared, Jesus provides. What the law determines, life through trust and faith in Jesus Christ provides. Let me conclude with this. Remember, Jesus has called us to follow him. That is the pronouncement that comes throughout. We're going to see it again in Mark. Follow me. Drop your nets. Follow me. But sometimes we can come to those passages and wonder to ourselves, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? Where is he leading us? I love Jesus, I believe in him, but what does it mean to follow him? Where are we going? We need to pay attention because Mark just told us. Mark just made it really explicitly clear that Jesus ventured into solitude to fellowship with God. Will you go with him? Jesus refused to settle into the comforts of a religious clique, but expanded his reach to others. Will you go with him? Jesus moved in to love and care for the ones that everyone, including the religious community, turned their backs on. Will you go with him? Jesus went out, Jesus went on, and Jesus went in. Reality, let's follow him. Let's follow him. Amen?